Thank you, Darren. Well, it's Easter Sunday morning, but it's too late for an Easter sunrise service. Both the sun and the sun have risen. So we're going to look at something that happened later in the day on that first Easter. We're going to turn to one of the most beloved of all post-resurrection stories, the account of what took place on the road to Emmaus. You may have seen the classic picture of two men and Jesus walking down a tree-lined road. And while it is a beautiful picture, it pales in comparison to the picture Luke paints for us. Mark mentions it in passing, but Luke goes into surprising detail, and that has led some to suggest that he might be one of the men on the road with Jesus. But as we'll later see, that's not likely. He does, however, probably get his account from one of the two. The details and the emotions expressed certainly make it feel like a first-hand account. And there's so much in this account that we can't do it justice in one message. So we're going to divide it into two. This week, we're going to look at the risen Lord concealed, and next week, we'll see the risen Lord revealed. The account is found in Luke 24, and it begins with a picture of the risen Lord concealed by something we might call spiritual blindness. We're in Luke chapter 24. And behold, two of them were going that very day to a village named Emmaus, which was about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were conversing with each other about all these things which had taken place. And it came about that while they were conversing and discussing, Jesus himself approached and began traveling with them. But their eyes were prevented from recognizing him. The first question this account raises is quite simply, who are these two? You know, Luke merely identifies them as two of them. Two of whom? The them in verse 11 refers to the apostles, and that's our nearest antecedent, so that's our first thought. But when we get to verse 18, we'll find one of them named, and he's not an apostle. If we go back a bit further in the account, we find that the women returned from the tomb and reported all they had seen and heard to the eleven and to all the rest. So these two were probably part of all the rest. They were followers of Jesus. They weren't apostles, but they were disciples of Jesus. And they had heard the women's report. But like the apostles, they didn't believe them. Apparently, they too believed it to be nonsense. It just did not make sense. How could anyone who had been crucified by the Romans and certified as being dead come back to life? 
It's now Sunday afternoon, and they are most likely heading home to Emmaus, a village about seven miles from Jerusalem. As they're walking, they're conversing, they're talking, discussing the events of the past three days, no doubt trying to make sense of everything that had happened. And as they're walking along talking, Jesus joins them on the road. The resurrected Lord starts walking with them. Now, whether he overtook them or met them in a a fork on the road, we aren't told. All we're told is that Jesus himself approached and began traveling with them. Now, we've already established that these two were disciples of Jesus, so they knew him. They had no doubt traveled with him before, but now they don't recognize him. At first, that seems really strange. But then we remember that Mary Magdalene, who we know knew Jesus very well, didn't recognize him when he appeared to her either. After Peter and John left her at the empty tomb weeping, angels spoke to her. They asked her why she was weeping, and she told them it was because someone had taken the body of Jesus, and she didn't know where he was. Then when she turned around, she saw Jesus standing there, but she thought he was the gardener. It wasn't until he spoke her name that she recognized him and embraced him. Why didn't she recognize him at first? It may have been because her eyes were filled with tears. Likewise, Luke tells us the eyes of the two on the road to Emmaus were prevented from recognizing Jesus. Perhaps their eyes were filled with tears too. But on second thought, that can't be true. Real men don't cry. (laughs) Maybe they were walking into the sunset and the sun was in their eyes. Maybe they were just so caught up in their discussion that they gave no thought to the identity of the one who had joined them. Maybe Christ's resurrected body looked different. And Mark does say it appeared to them in a different form. Or maybe their eyes were prevented, or as it literally says, their eyes were being prevented, indicates divine activity. Maybe God or Jesus himself was intentionally keeping them from recognizing who he was. Maybe he knew they would get too emotional and start clinging to him, as did Mary, if they recognized him before he had the opportunity to help them understand what had happened and why. But but then again, men never get that emotional. Right, Scott? (laughs) Whatever the reason, we learn something very important here. It's possible to be blinded to the presence of Jesus even when he's in our midst. We might even be talking about Jesus, discussing him. We might be in a Bible study and not see him. And while not in the same form in which he joined the men on the road to Emmaus, whatever form that might have been, he does join with us today. Now, I'm not suggesting that he mystically comes into our midst in worship. That if our worship is what it ought to be, 
he'll join us. The context in which he said, for where two or three have gathered together my name, there I am in their midst, is in decision-making, not worship. He was promising to be with us when we prayerfully make hard decisions together. That's not to suggest that he's not with us in worship. He is certainly with us when we meet together because he indwells each of us through his spirit. Those who have prepared their heart for his habitation by cleansing of their sins have welcomed him into their life. If that's the case, Jesus is within them. So when we gather together to worship, he is present. He is here because we bring him into worship with us. And we should see Jesus in each other. We should see him in our brothers and sisters as we worship together. His presence in our life, however, is not limited to times of worship. His presence should be visible and recognizable all the time in everything we do. We should even see him in the world at large because he created it and he sustains us. And we should obviously see him in his word because he embodies it. The resurrected Christ dwells in our midst. But we often fail to see him. Why? Why are we so blind to his presence? Could it simply be that we're not looking for him? That we don't expect to see him? The men on the road to Emmaus didn't expect Jesus to join them. They were talking about him, but they surely didn't expect the risen Lord to begin walking with them. May we never get so caught up conversing with each other about Jesus that we fail to look for him in our midst. Indeed, our lack of expectation can lead to spiritual blindness. But the risen Lord can also be concealed by disillusionment. Let's continue. And he said to them, what are these words that you are exchanging with one another as you're walking? And they stood still, looking sad. And one of them, named Cleopas, answered and said to him, Are you the only one visiting Jerusalem and unaware of the things which have happened here in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, The things about Jesus, the Nazarene, who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word in the sight of God and all the people. And how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him up to the sentence of death and crucified him. But we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. When Jesus joined them and asked them what they were talking about, they stopped talking. They stood still and it became obvious they were very sad about something. Cleopas, the only one named, spoke up. 
Speaking for both of them, he asked, Are you the only one visiting Jerusalem and unaware of the things which have happened here these days? They couldn't believe Jesus didn't know what they'd been talking about. Everyone in Jerusalem was talking about the same thing. When Jesus asked, What things? Their answer not only revealed what they'd been talking about, it revealed why they were so sad. They told him they'd been talking about Jesus, the Nazarene, a prophet who had done and said some mighty things. They also told how the chief priests and their rulers had delivered him up to the sentence of death and crucified him. Referring to the rulers as our rulers is probably a reference to the Jewish rulers. And if that's the case, it gives evidence to the fact that Luke was not one of the two because he was a Gentile. Be that as it may, Cleopas continued, but we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. They thought of Jesus as a mighty prophet and had hoped that he would prove to be the Messiah. And of course, they expected the Messiah to free the Jewish nation from Roman domination. They certainly didn't expect the Messiah to be crucified. Now their hope was gone. Jesus had failed to meet their expectations. They were disillusioned. And their disillusionment may have kept them from seeing Jesus in their midst. The same thing can happen to us today. We all have expectations of what Jesus should and should not do. And it's easy for us to think he's not here when our expectations aren't met. We don't get what we pray for. Our life falls apart. A loved one dies unexpectedly. And from our perspective, prematurely, a faithful preacher and his wife die in a pandemic. Now, something happens that we don't think should happen, not if Jesus were here. So we decide he's not here. And we don't see him. When our expectations are built upon the way we think things ought to be, or upon our desires, instead of the way things really are and what God has actually promised, we inevitably find ourselves disillusioned. And when we are disillusioned, it's very hard to see Jesus in our life or in our midst. The risen Lord is also concealed by simple unbelief. They continue. Indeed. Besides all this, it is the third day since these things happened. But also some women among us amazed us. When they were at the tomb early in the morning and did not find his body, they came saying that they had also seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. 
And some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just exactly as the women also had said. But him they did not see. Cleopas continued. Jesus was crucified three days ago. But this morning some women came with quite an amazing story. They had gone looking for Jesus' body, and when they couldn't find it, they had a vision of angels. And the angels, in their vision, told them he was alive. You can almost hear the unbelief in their voice. The women had a vision. They didn't have a vision of angels. They actually saw angels. They saw two men, two angels, in dazzling apparel. And they were terrified. Cleopas, like the apostles, apparently dismissed their report as nonsense. He went on to say that some of them had actually gone to the tomb. And just as the women had said, Jesus was gone. No one saw him. They didn't see his body. And they certainly didn't see him alive. Truth be told, by then, the risen Lord had been seen. He had been seen by Mary Magdalene, the rest of the women, and Peter. But the men on the road to Emmaus didn't know that. And even if they had been told that Jesus had appeared to some, they probably wouldn't have believed it. In fact, when some of the disciples heard from Mary herself that she had seen Jesus alive, they refused to believe her. Some things are really hard to believe. And believing that someone who has been dead three days is now alive is one of them. In truth, they should have been easy for them to believe it because Lazarus had been dead, what, four days? when Jesus raised him from the dead. But they refused to believe that Jesus was alive. In spite of the eyewitness accounts and their own past experiences with Jesus, they found it just too hard to believe that Jesus had risen from the dead. Even when the resurrected Christ was walking with them and talking to them, they didn't believe he was alive. Indeed, simple unbelief can blind us to Christ's presence in the world, in the church, in the lives of our brothers and sisters, and even in our own life. And we all struggle with unbelief. What you may not realize, however, is that the unbelief we all struggle with actually doesn't come from us comes from a spiritual enemy who is actively seeking to keep us spiritually blind. The Apostle Paul made that clear when he told us, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. Before we became believers, Satan had blinded us 
to spiritual realities. And he did everything he could to keep us in spiritual darkness. By God's grace, however, the light of the gospel broke through our blindness. We came to understand who Jesus is and why he had to die and rise again. Through eyes of faith, we could then see him at work in our life, in our church, and even in a fallen world. But the devil never gives up. In fact, he works even harder to put out the light than he did to blind us in the first place. It's quite possible that he's the one who prevented the eyes of Jesus' own disciples from recognizing him on the road to Emmaus. No doubt he had a hand in their false expectations, their disillusionment, and their unbelief. And he can do the same thing to us. He can blind us to the presence of Jesus if we let down our guard and drop our shield of faith. And we must keep our helmet of salvation securely fastened. We must not let the enemy get into our head and conceal the risen Lord through unrealistic expectations, disillusionment, or simple unbelief. And if you're here just because it's Easter, please do not let an occasional visit to church inoculate you against a life-changing encounter with the living God. May our eyes be opened to the presence of the risen Lord. And may our eyes be kept open. May we never lose sight of the fact that he lives. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for the assurance that Jesus lives. And we thank you for making us aware of the struggle to believe that. For making us aware of a spiritual enemy who strives to blind us and cause us to give up our faith. An enemy who gives us false expectations and who makes us feel disillusioned with you and the church and your son. An enemy who, who tries desperately to rob us of our belief. We're thankful for the struggle the apostles had. The struggle the disciples had. Because we know that eventually, your witness, your presence, overpowered their unbelief. And it's my prayer today, Father, that your presence in this place, your presence in our lives, your presence 
even in a world that has been deformed and stained by sin, can be seen. The beauty of a sunrise gives us hope because we know the sun has risen. He has risen indeed.